So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to uh, the book of John, chapter 1, and then maybe if you have a ribbon in your Bible that you can mark, also turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, so the, this morning, the, the title of the this, this sermon is The Only Begotten Son of God. That may remind you about the idea of eternal generation that we covered a couple weeks ago. Um, but this is not looking back at that topic of eternal generation. Instead, this morning, really what I'm going to be addressing is the idea of the incarnation, Jesus being the only begotten Son of God as fully God and fully man. And though we may know this in, in some sense consistently, like think, oh, we've got our heads wrapped around this, I, wanna, I think that this is an important message because as we're dealing with the doctrine of God, if we don't grasp the idea of the incarnation well, then really what we can enter into is error. And that error, especially at the time of Christmas as we're celebrating the birth of Christ, uh, we don't want to enter into. We, we want to make sure that our doctrine is really solid and sound. So what we do through the, the season of Christmas is really to worship Him rightly and well. Because if our doctrine is off, then what does that mean about our worship and our practice? They will actually end off as, uh, like off track as well. So I want to begin um, with this statement um, because I think this is an important statement. This is uh, by Chris Morgan. If you're not familiar with him, no worries, but uh, I would encourage you to just get, get familiar with his name. Chris is the uh, president. No, 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 no. He is the dean of the California Baptist uh, University School of Theology, and he's written several books. Uh, this comes out of his systematic theology, um, and it's a really great statement about the incarnation. So we're going to kind of use Chris's statement to set up what we're going to cover this morning. So here's what he says, Christ's deity is necessary for salvation because only God can rescue us. Now, let me pause here for just a minute. Remember, when we're talking about the incarnation, we're talking about how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So Chris, in this first sentence, addresses the, uh, the essential aspect of Christ remaining fully God because only God can rescue us. He says then, Christ's humanity is also essential for salvation because only a human can represent us. So it's a really great concise statement where he points to the humanity that is that which rescue or redeems us or rescues us and then the humanity that represents us. And then he concludes, only the God-man can be our mediator, rescuing us by dying in our place and making atonement for our sins. When I read that statement, I was Man, that's just such a concise way to understand the importance of Christ's uh, incarnation, how he remains both fully God and fully man. So first of all, I want us to look at a couple things. We're going to um, look at uh, what it means for Christ to have been fully God and fully man. How does the scripture reveal that? I know we've addressed this, uh, both Michael and I, a couple times, but in John 1, verses 1 through 3, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So John 1, verses 1 through 3, is that one of those key passages 
that we see that the Word being Jesus, that's what John is using that, that idea there, that the Word is Jesus. He is completely God. He's responsible for creation. He's the one that is, uh, has always been. So we get all of these theological uh, implications pressed into these three verses that are essential for us to understand. And so what we are ultimately looking at when we think about the incarnation is this idea that Jesus being fully God becomes man. He becomes in the flesh. So we sung a couple times, this wasn't in the, the message, but I, I, I mean in my preparation, but I think this is important for us to note because we've been worshiping around a word this morning. The word Emmanuel. What does the word Emmanuel mean? Say it really loud because the air is running. God with us, okay? That, that is such an important word. When we get to the Christmas season, we tend to throw that word into those uh, hymns and Christmas songs because we're talking about the fact that God has come down and He, God, resides with us in the person of Jesus. I don't have to yell over that air conditioning anymore. Brent, are you glad? Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, Brent, when is it going to turn off? I saw you look up. Like, this is annoying. I'm with you, man. Are y'all ready? Can we keep going now? So, Emmanuel, God with us. We, we have the, the person of the Godhead dwelling with us in that sense. Now, certainly he has gone back to heaven and he resides in heaven now. But we, we sing about the fact that he came in the flesh as fully God, fully man, to be both the rescuer and the redeemer for us, the one who would mediate on our behalf our salvation. It's such a, a great concept. So John 1, verses 1 through 3, is certainly a key point of that, where we get that idea. Um, so let's look over in Hebrews chapter 2, though, because I think that this is a really important passage that we may not necessarily think of very often when, when we think about the incar incarnation of Christ and His ministry, but I think this is, is so helpful. So let's look... Um, we're going to look at Hebrews 2, verses 9 through about 17, and, and I want to show us a couple things out of this passage. So I'm going to read it first, and then we'll go back and, and break these things down. So Hebrews 2, 9, but we see him, now who is the him here that the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about? It's Jesus, okay? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Doesn't that sound like John 1, 1 through 3 right there? Okay, so just a little sideways. But who, by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let's read 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What, what a rich passage. Um, and, and I would venture to say this, that most of us, um, if you've been walking with the Lord for a length of time, you've probably memorized John 1, 1 through 3. But I would encourage you, maybe Hebrews 2, uh, verses 9 through 17, 18, would be just as valuable of a, a passage to memorize about the person of Christ and what his work has accomplished on our behalf. Because it's such a, uh, a short passage, but it, it covers so many details about the incarnation, the reason for these things, and how he has ministered through the incarnation salvation to us. So let me break a couple things down. The first is this. Um, if you look back at verse, verses uh, 9 and 10, and I'll, I'll read this again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, so as we begin to look at this, the first thing that we see that Jesus has done, we see that in verses 9 through 10, it was necessary for him to suffer. Had he not come in the flesh, his suffering would not have been, been uh, 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 he would not have been obedient to the point of suffering, and his death would not have accomplished any purpose because he didn't actually endure it, okay? So he couldn't have been our salvation and provided any means of salvation had he not come in the flesh and suffered for us. I want to I read um, a statement here, and I've summarized this because John Owen, uh, who I was uh, studying, I thought, man, what does he write? Because he's got six volumes, like, they're no joke, they're like this, on the book of Hebrews. And, and he's a Puritan writer, and I was like, I don't want to read Puritan stuff this morning. I want to summarize it. So here's essentially what John Owen says about this. I love it. He says, Jesus serves as the priest, the sacrifice, and altar himself, being consecrated and perfected through suffering to satisfy the immutable justice of God as the only possible way to bring sinners to glory. Isn't that a great statement? That, that Jesus had to come in the flesh to suffer, and he fulfills these three offices. I love how Owen says it. The priest, he is the priest, the sacrifice, and himself, the um, altar upon which everything occurred. So, so we see Jesus, had he just remained in heaven and not come in the flesh, he couldn't have fulfilled, fulfilled all of those things that are necessary for our salvation. So it's why Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. When we look back and see all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, what do we know about those things? Y'all can respond. What do we know about the Old Testament sacrifices? Never take away sin. How do we know that, Tony? Anybody can help, Tony. Okay, because they were not a, the, the same sacrifice. They, they weren't like us in nature. Okay, so that's one reason. Help them out. Why else? That's right. They can, had to do this continually on an annual basis or, or other points in their, uh, their, their rituals, their worship rituals. So, so it's occurring consistently. 
So it was an imperfect sacrifice. But Jesus, because he took on human nature in our flesh, he became the only one who could provide a perfect sacrifice for us. And, and Hebrews describes that so well. So I, I um, want to look at verse 10 because I think this is also a very interesting idea. Because if we don't understand this well, I think this could lead, lead us into like a misinterpretation of some things. Um, and, and we might misunderstand Christ rightly. So look back at, at verse 10. It says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things existence, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, so there's actually some interpretive issues about what it meant for Jesus to ma be made perfect through suffering. So let me give you a couple clear ideas here. The first is, and I'm going to use a word that I used a couple weeks ago, and that is that word ontology. What does ontology mean? Does anybody remember? Y'all didn't know you are going to get quizzed this morning. Pop quiz. Being. It, ontology has to do with one's being, how we're made up in our existence, okay? It's like all the things about our nature. And so when we think about the, the fact that Christ is in his being perfect as who? Both God and man, okay? This passage where it says that he has, he's been made perfect through suffering cannot mean that ontologically in his being anything about the suffering has changed him. Does that make sense? Because if it changed him, then that meant he was what? Imperfect. Or he had some kind of need. Okay? So him being made perfect through suffering is not about, like, when we suffer, what is God doing to us and our being? S say it again. He's refining us because when we suffer, he reveals the character flaws that we have, and that character flaw and those th things reveal our need for him, and our hope changes, and our character changes based on our suffering and what he's producing in us, okay? Christ didn't need all that. He's perfect in his Godhead. He's perfect in his humanity. So his ontology, his being, is not being impacted by the suffering. So what does it mean, okay? Here's the idea. That Christ had a vocation. What does that mean? He had work to do. He had a ministry and a mission to fulfill. Okay? So had Christ not, like let's say he came, but then he didn't suffer, would he have fulfilled his vocational purpose as the, the atonement for sin, as the mediator for humanity? He would not have, right? Because the fulfillment of his uh, calling as the Messiah was to what? suffer on our behalf, to pay the penalty for our sin, to bear the weight of our guilt and shame upon him through the crucifixion. So as he's suffering, as he's enduring even the Garden of Gethsemane at that point, sweating those drops of blood, because he understands the weight of what is happening to him, he is uh, being made perfect according to his vocation, being obedient even to the point of death for us. So that's what that passage in Hebrews identifies for us. Now, let me say that, or say this. We may think, oh, yeah, that's no big deal. It's huge. It's huge. How many of us like to suffer? Yeah, no hands went up, right? We, we don't. We want to avoid suffering every chance we can. Parents, let me remind you. We, want, we as parents, we often want to help our children avoid suffering. 
We want them to avoid consequences. Can I remind you of this? Sometimes the best lessons are learned the hard way. I, I get, you know, hey, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove. But if you're going to be that hovering parent all the time, they may need to touch the stove and you go, yeah, I've told you, let's go heal the burn and help you. Then they've learned not to touch the stove. I don't want to risk them running out in front of a car, okay? There's, there's certainly boundaries. But we need to let our children suffer because part of that is gaining wisdom. Christ himself had to suffer. We need to understand this, the importance of this because had he not suffered, had he not endured the cup of suffering, which is what he's praying about in Gethsemane, we wouldn't have a mediator. We would be left without rescue and redemption. But it's only because Christ suffered vocationally through his work, that his ministry was fulfilled, that his mission was completed. That's why he could say on the cross, what? It is finished. It is finished. His mission was complete. Now, I know it took the resurrection as well to do that, but you get the earthly suffering aspect of that completion is finished. That's what he's pointing to in all of these things. And the writer of Hebrew correctly identifies that. So it's, it's so important for us to remember that. Let's go back now and look at Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15. He says this. So, so we've seen how Christ is made perfect, how Christ has suffered. Now we're going to look at this in verse, uh, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. <laughs> Had Jesus not suffered, the devil would not have been defeated. Folks, had the devil not been defeated, what would our hope be? We, we would have none. But because of the work of Christ, Satan is defeated. We have hope because of that. The, the deliverance that we have from death and slavery to sin is only accomplished because of what Christ has done. <coughs> so the point of this is, and you get, go back, excuse me, I got something tickling my throat. <coughs> he says in verse 14, the writer says, since therefore, <coughs> hey Jesse, <coughs> can you do me a favor? Yeah, thank you, Katie. This happens very rarely. I apologize. Two runners, thanks. Julianne, we've got to work on your quickness. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing, sweetie. <laughs> so I've I got I to tell on myself. Juliana is like an easy fish. Y'all know what that means? It's like I can throw the lure out, and she, like, jumps on it. I'm like, woo, reel it in. She's, she's just so fun to, like, grab and tease. So I'm sorry, sweetie. I love you. You know I'm picking. I'll pay later, right? She's sweet. She never does anything to get back at me. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 14. Since, therefore, since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself too, or likewise, partook of the same things. Had Christ not come in the flesh, none of this would happen for us. It, it, the salvation requires him to be fully man, bearing our human nature in himself. 
so that we would have a means of escape and rescue, that, that he could make propitiation. Had he not done that, there's, there was no hope. So he had to live uh, with uh, one in a like nature, in every con- way, condition like we are, except without sin. That's, that's the only difference. And so here's why that had to happen. Because if he had sinned, what would have re- been required? He would have had to have been perfected in some way, but his human nature was found in perfection without sin. That's the only way he could make atonement for us. Um, then look, look at Hebrews 2.17. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.17. Thanks again for the water. That helped a ton. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we've looked at this again and again, and it's a simple concept, but we require Jesus to be made in the flesh or to come fully in the flesh to make propitiation for our sins. That is what gave him the office as that one who is the high priest able to mediate for us. So let me give you two um, so these are simple things. You probably have heard most of these things before, okay? But here's the problem. And <clears throat> I want to give you two histor- historical issues that ca- have come up about the incarnation. And then I'm going to challenge us about some things that are happening in modern culture that we may see as well about the incarnation. So there were two historical issues that compromised the sound doctrine of the incarnation. Now, now I'm looking at Scripture, and I, I'll be honest. I think these are pretty clear things that the Scriptures teach. But there's some that held these two views. The first is adoptionism. Okay, now what adoptionism means is that at some point, Jesus was born, but he was just a normal man. And then at that point, most likely everybody who holds adoptionism thinks that it was around his baptism, that he then, the the, the divine nature was then like adopted into Jesus. Okay, or that human nature, uh, or his humanity adopted the, the divine nature. So he was only a man until through, through the birth, and then at baptism, he adopted the divine nature. We don't see that scripturally. Scripturally, we see that he was born fully God, okay? Let me give you a verse to, well, we saw that in John 1, 1 through 3 already. Let's go look at Galatians 4. So maybe keep a ribbon in Hebrews or bookmark somewhere, but let's go to Galatians 4, just a few books back before, uh, before Hebrews. In Galatians 4, Verses 4 through 5, here's what we read. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So here's a parallel passage, if you will, that talks about the incarnation, that talks about how Christ was born as the Son was born. He was born under the law. There's a couple things that that, uh, we get out of this. First, the idea of being born out of the woman. The Greek stresses, there's a little uh, word ek, that preposition ek, stresses that Jesus shared both the divine and the human nature of Mary. And then the second idea is the phrase born under the law emphasizes the shared nature in Adam. So we see in the birth of Christ, there's both natures right there. And then it emphasizes also that uh, he was part of all mankind, both fully human and fully God. Um, Then 
There's, a other, there's another error. So we see adoptionism right there. There's a, a, another error called kenoticism, okay? If you want to spell that, K-E-N-O-T-I-C-I-S-M, kenoticism or kenoticism, um, K-E-N-O-T-I-C-I-S-M. That is birthed out of the passage in Philippians. So you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 2. Let's go to Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 7. You'll, be, you'll likely be familiar with this passage, but I, I want to share how it's misinterpreted and then correct that error, okay? So this passage is dealing with the service of Christ, his, his servant-mindedness. And so in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The idea of kenoticism, it takes this idea of that, that where it says he emptied himself and became like came in the form of a man um, and, and misinterprets that and says that he reduced his divine nature in some way. So that emptying of himself was saying he's less than God. As we've looked, there's no way that, that God, as we've looked at this, his ontology, that Christ being fully in essence and being fully God, that he could ever strip that away. Because if he did, then what would happen? He wouldn't be fully God. And so when this, this uh, heresy of canonicism says he emptied himself of his Godhead and laid it aside, that's not what happens. So that error is important for us to identify. The empty is, is qualified here. Let's look back at it in verse 7. How does his emptying take form? It says he took the form of what? A servant. It's not that he laid aside his deity. That's not what qualifies the emptying. It's that he became a servant and, and served humanity by becoming a, a man, fully man, so that he might serve us in his incarnation or through the incarnation as our atonement for sin and as our Savior. Does that make sense? So it's not laying aside deity. If that had happened, he wouldn't be fully God and man, and he couldn't have provided the rescue and the redemption and the, the pro right process for us. So we, we've already seen that in other passages. So let's look at one more that uh, passage that uh, answers canonicism. Look at Colossians 2. One more book over towards the back from Galatians, um, from, from Philippians. Colossians 2, verse 9, says this. For in him, Jesus, because so, you can go back to, uh, let's go read verse 8. It'll be good to read just a little context. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. <laughs> Boom. Like, just drop the mic, right? So here, Paul's saying to the Colossians, certainly because of the ministry of Christ, he is fully God and fully man. He ha it's not that he's emptied himself of his divinity in any way through this idea of canonicism. So when we look at, and this is where I would like encourage us with good Bible study habits, certainly go to the text in one book of scripture, but make sure we bring balance to that text by interpreting 
through the lens of other doctrines and other places that speak to the same matters. So we've got to be careful not to, because if we don't do that, then we fall into heresy and we end up in error. So um, let me let me give you, so Juliana, you handed out some papers. Did anyone not get a paper this morning? Okay, there's a couple of you who didn't. Um, raise your hands high. Juliana will pass those around. Um, I'll give you just a second to get there. I've been in the habit of passing some of these pieces of information out lately. Um, part of this is really to help you see historically where the church has been on certain issues. Predominantly why I'm handing out the Second London Baptist Confession is because it follows just after the Westminster Confession, which are, are key Protestant doctrines, or documents, uh, confessionals, um, around the middle or early part of the 1600s to the latter part of the 1600s, when the both Presbyterians and Baptists were really shaping their doctrine kind of post-Reformation. Um, it's also, the Second London Baptist Confession is also a very uh, prominent doc document that influenced other things like the Philadelphia Confession of Faith that came over for or was developed here that ultimately becomes like a, a foundation for what the Baptist faith and message is on. But what tends to happen is we look at some of these earlier documents and then we shorten later things. Jesse, I'm, I'm like, man, there's something moving fast. The color, I was like, it's a rat. It's not a rat. It's just Jake. So... <laughs> But you got to understand, it was out of the corner of my eye. I'm like, we have a rat in the church. We don't have rats in the church. <laughs> y'all don't understand what I deal with up here. Look at all y'all. Uh, is he okay? No, it's good. It's good. It's just, just why that flew into my brain, I don't know. Golly, it's one of those mornings. Okay, so the Second London Baptist Confession, um, it's got a great rich statement about the uh, incarnation of Christ. I get in trouble trying to buy a little bit of time. Y'all got to arrive on time to get all the paperwork early now, so I'm blaming y'all, sorry. So let's read this second statement, okay? The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God. I love that statement, okay? Because you get that ontology, that, that aspect of who He is in His being. Very and eternal God. The brightness of the Father's glory. Now listen to this statement. Of one substance and equal with him who made the world. That's what we've talked about with the divinity of Christ this morning. So what they're saying in this statement on, of Christ the mediator is they're identifying him as fully divine. And then he goes on, he who upholds and governs all things, he is made, did when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him what? Man's nature. So we get this statement that really clarifies well how he is fully divine and he has the full nature, human nature of, of humanity with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it. I love the language because it really explains what they mean by saying he took on our full nature. I know this is crude, but Jesus probably got sick. He probably threw up. He dealt with colds and other things because he was fully human, okay? Now, he didn't sin, but he lived with 12 guys out in the wilderness and doing stuff. He, was a, it, it, he probably lived like a guy does, and I'm not going into that, okay? But you can imagine, he was a, a man, okay? Properties, essential properties, and common affirmities, yet without sin. 
being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, which is a huge uh, issue surrounding his full divinity, that he was conceived by the Spirit, not conceived by a man. And it says this, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. Now look at what's underlined next. So that two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And then you have some scriptural references right there. So here's the point of what this confession really like identifies well. There's two full natures of Christ, fully divine, or fully divine, fully human, they are distinct. They're not melted together. He didn't lay his divinity aside. He didn't just take on part of humanity. In every way, he is fully God and fully man in one person. And that one person, Jesus Christ, is the mediator for us between God and, and us, paying the penalty for our sin that we might have salvation. Folks, as we lean into this Christmas season, if we don't get this right, and I said it before, then our worship is compromised then our celebration is compromised. Then our salvation is compromised. Our practice of faith is compromised because we cannot drift into the errors of either adoptionism or kenoticism. Now, let me say this. You're not going to hear people saying a lot of that stuff today, but what are you going to find? Y'all tell me, what are you going to find people saying about Jesus Christ today in culture? Maybe not in the church, but maybe amongst culture. Give me some feedback first. Let's see if, if y'all sense what I'm sensing. Okay, Jesus is just all right with me. Like, and what is that? What's, I know that's a lyric. Okay, so he, he's cool. We, we can accept Jesus, right? But what is that really, what are they really saying about that? About Jesus in that? Just a good person, okay? I, I, can, I can identify that there's something good about Jesus, okay? What else does culture say? Okay, there you go. Can't judge me. Jesus didn't judge. Is that true? It's absolutely false. Jesus came to do what? Satisfy our penalty of sin, right? To pay, fully pay the penalty of our sin. He, and I love what um, I think it was Owen said, that he satisfied the immutable justice of God. Does that ring like true to you in your spirit this morning? If, if he didn't judge, why does he have to satisfy God's justice? Why did he have to die? He wouldn't have had to if he, just had to, if he was just going to be a good model for us. The, 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 the crucifixion was not necessary if we just needed a, a good model. Okay? And what else? I'm, I'm kind of answering, but what else does the culture say? Yeah, that's right. He's just like us. And though, Brandy, right, there's a hint of truth in that, that's not the full truth. And we've got to be careful to understand that that is presenting a false argument for why we follow Jesus. Because he's not just like us, is he? He's certainly fully human. In that sense, he is just like us. But if he's just like us, what would he have to have? Sin. That's right, Brian. He would have sinned just like us, but he did not sin. 
Therefore, his human nature, where he is like us, is perfect. So there's a distinction there. And so Jesus is not just like us, and so we can just be a good, yeah, he's like a moral model for us, and that's what I'm getting at. The culture says, hey, uplift Jesus or make Jesus a model for us on how we ought to act and live and treat one another. Not that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the one who had to suffer and die in our place, bearing our guilt and shame, suffering the cup of uh, uh, suffering, okay? And during that cup, that, that all the suffering of humanity, that that's what's represented in that cup. His, his blood spilling certainly is what provides redemption and atonement for us and cleanses us from sin. It's much richer than just being a good model, a, a, a moral person that we ought to follow. But that's what the culture's moving more and more towards. It's not adoption or, or kenoticism, but it's certainly not an orthodox teaching about Jesus being our Savior, fully God and fully man. Y'all get that, right? And you're seeing it change in the culture. I think uh, I've seen that commercial a couple times, but even at that point. Any other thoughts about what the world views Jesus as? Yeah, Tony. Yeah. 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 What uh, Talladega Nights? Yeah. I mean, I, I love you know movies and stuff like that. But there's a, a a little bit of that sarcasm and truth in in that movie about praying to sweet baby Jesus. But it's like also really sacrilege that diminishes who Christ really is as being fully divine, the man who suffered our sin, for our sin, the, the one who had to fully f suffer to fulfill his vocation and mission and ministry. You get that? That's why Hebrews 2 is so important for this, because we tend to, like, devalue the Lord in culture, and, and, or the culture devalues him. And then we can slide into that as Christians even and adopt that mindset a little bit. We need to be careful of that. Any other thoughts? I love feedback time with y'all. It's, it's helpful in a moment. So if anybody else has anything, real quick, for once, twice, okay. Um, let, me, let me give you a couple more quick pieces. Um, and I don't want to belabor this, but I think this is important. We've mentioned this this morning. I don't want you to think that this is all only from the New Testament. There's this, there's... <laughs> There's been some language come out in some recent years that, that people that I've respected at points in, in their ministry, they say, they've said some things like, uh, we can unhitch from the Old Testament or unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. No, 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 okay? If we don't understand what the Old Testament teaches regarding the New Testament, we're missing out. We can't unhitch those things, okay? So let me give you a clear thing. Look at Genesis 3.15. I know it's way back. Genesis 3.15. Here, what's happened in context, Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve have sinned. The Lord has returned to the garden, and he's approaching Adam and Eve, and then he's actually speaking to the serpent here, the, the physical manifestation of Satan, and he, he says to him, um, I, in verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, uh, 
Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then here's the next point, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, so in this, there's this picture of the serpent, head, his head being crushed, the death, but the uh, idea of the serpent biting the heel of the seed of the woman. This is a physical picture, okay? This is not metaphorical. In, the, in one sense it is, but there's a mixture of literal, literal and metaphorical. So the literal is this, that there's a seed of the woman, okay? And that there's death and bruising that will occur. So what ultimately um, is pictured here is Satan's going to be destroyed. What do we read in Hebrews 2? That Jesus would destroy Satan. <laughs> Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled right here. You don't unhitch the Old Testament from these things. It's pictured. What's the bruising of Jesus that occurs? It's his death, but it's only bruising because it's temporary in that he, what? Resurrects. Okay? He resurrects from the bruising of that death. It's not final for him. All of that points back to Genesis 3.15. You can trace the, the promises that God has given to the Israelites, to the people of God, to both the, the physical Israelites and then us as spiritual Israelites who are, are now offspring of Abraham because of the seed. You can trace these things throughout the Old Testament. Abraham in Genesis tw um, 12. Um, I can't remember the verse right now. But Abraham has promised that there will be a seed that comes, uh, an offspring that will bring, uh, transform many nations. David has an eternal son given to him on the throne. All of these things, again and again, point to the person of Jesus. So we see these very things, what the Old Testament is sharing, pointing to Jesus and the fulfillment of those things. So folks, I encourage you, go back and study the Old Testament to see how these things are fulfilled by the promises of God in the New Testament. It's encouraging. It strengthens us. It helps us understand what it means when Jesus came in the fullness of time to fulfill the promises of God. It's, it's the, the Old Testament promises being fulfilled. Um, so let me read one more passage, and then I'm going to give you some complete thoughts. Go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 14 through 15. It says this, Since then, we have a great high priest. We've covered that this morning about Jesus being the high priest. Who has passed through the heavens. There's that idea of divinity. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let's read verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's what I would encourage us towards. As we think through, as we celebrate the wonderful doctrine of God that focuses in on the incarnation, that Jesus, the Son of God, being the only begotten Son of God, He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our confession. He is worthy of us following that we might 
be encouraged by our relationship with Him. Because when we have surrendered to Him and His Lordship through salvation, confessing our faith in Him, what then happens is this mighty God, fully divine, fully human, He, through His Spirit, indwells us. And He abides in us, according to John 15. And we are transformed forever. And folks, I'll be honest. I think that we know these things, but we don't live them out. We, we kind of say, oh yeah, I've got the doctrine, but the doctrine doesn't shape our lives. We need for the doctrine to shape our lives and our worship of Christ to be that which drives us every day so that we trust in, in the remembrance of His great grace being poured out for us, that He was the one who suffered on our behalf, that we might find freedom from sin and the chains that bind us and walk in a new way of life in Christ. If we walked in Christ, if we walked in Christ, if we lived in Christ, if we thought in Christ, how different would our lives be? How different would the lives around us be shaped because of what Christ is doing in us continually? It's not just some doctrine to go, oh yeah, we, we sat in church and, and heard this stuff and we go, yeah, yeah, that's really great. It's not just something to, to just say, oh yeah, it's Christmas time, that's going to help me worship a little more. It's how we live out our faith in our confession, that we will be continually transformed by these truths because we're surrendered rightly to Christ. You can't help but have these things continue to change us if, if we would think about them consistently. That's, that's the key. We have to meditate upon these things so that Christ in his, our minds are being renewed by Him through us because it's our mind renewal, according to Romans 12.1, that shapes our worship. You get that? So thinking about these things consistently, renewing our mind transforms us so that we are worshipers of God. And that doesn't mean we come coming into church. It means worshiping on how we live out our faith all of the time. So I'm going to give you a quick commercial. And I love this that we're doing in our church now. At 845 down in the garage, um, for 10 minutes, people are gathering for prayer for our church, for our community. And here's one of the things that like we're praying. One, unity of the church. Two, how visitors will be received by our church. Three, how we can impact the, the community at large. Th those are just a few of the, the five or six things that we're trying to pray consistently in that 10 minutes before we gather. Please hear this. One, you're all invited that time. It's going to happen every Sunday, um, 8.45 to uh, 8.55. Two, the things that we're praying, we're, we're serious about, that we want to see Christ through us impact our community. Not just to be coming in here on a, a service time and, and having these things uh, talked about, but it's that we would live these things out well. So, I want to ask Mason to come and do a reprise. You know what you're going to do? Hark the Herald, first verse, Katie. Um, and uh, as Mason begins to play, I just want to do this. I want to ask you this question just to, to meditate on this morning in response. How are you doing contemplating your confession of this great God that we serve. How are you doing in your confession, as you contemplate this, how are you doing in your confession of this great God that we serve? This God who is unchanging. This God who is fully God in three persons, amazing. This God who has, uh, relates to his, himself 
in these three persons in a very particular way that we might worship Him rightly. This God who is fully divine and fully human in Christ that we might find freedom from our sin. How are you doing in your confession of that? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, truly this morning as I think about all the things that we've covered in this Doctrine of God series, there's some incredibly rich truths. And Lord, some of it, it can be so much for us to even capture and contemplate in, in one morning. But Lord, the truth is all of it really points us to this one place. How do we confess Jesus? Lord, there may be somebody here today that has never uh, surrendered to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, that, that means they may know truth, but they've not confessed with their heart that Jesus is Lord and uh, having believed that he's been raised from the dead and confess their sins and their need for Christ. Lord, if that's where they are today, but they know they need to do that, I pray that you would draw them to a conversation with myself or somebody else here at the church that can give them counsel. Lord, for us that walk with you and have been saved, and we, we know that we're eternally secure because of our salvation. Lord, the truth is, all of us, we, we wax and wane in our walk. We need to strengthen our confession. We, we need to walk more faithfully with you. And Lord, when we hear a message like the, the text points out today, Lord, it should drive us to more faithful worship, to more confidence in that confession, not just internally, but, but in a, a, a social and relational way with everyone around us, whether that be believers or lost people. So Lord, I pray that in the, in the quietness of the next moment that we would hear from your spirit. And Lord, where we fall short, you would convict us and we would make a commitment, Lord, to changing how we operate, to confess you with more confidence. Heavenly Father, as the psalmist writes, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Let us not be people who act like fools. Lord, I, I dare say that everyone here under the sound of my voice says in their heart there's a, there's a God, but Lord, we may practically deny that as we walk through our weeks. Lord, may our hearts be so transformed by the truth of your word, by the presence of your spirit, by relinquishing um, the kind of the mindset of the world and, and being overcome by the, the renewal of our minds through these kind of texts. Let our worship be such that you are glorified in all that we say and all that we do. So, Father, as we uh, stand now to sing, I pray that you'd be honored as we do this reprise, and it would even drive us back both to connect the worship and the thoughts of Scripture. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen.